Hello, thank you for coming. Uh, we'll have something very special today. We will be talking about the sound in Jenny C. Jones' direction show. My name is Milena Kalinowska. I'm director of public programs and education here at the Hirschhorn Museum. And we have a, a special person with us here today who really knows a lot about sound. We have with us today uh, Matthew Barton, who works and is a curator at the Library of Congress. Um, his particular section collects, uh, has a huge collection of sound and collects about 25 different recordings per year that either reflect or record uh, particular cultural, social, and other events in the United States. Um, help me to welcome Matthew Barton. Uh, before I introduce, uh, before uh, Matthew will speak, I also want to say that um, Evelyn Hankins is a curator of Genesee Jones' exhibition. And she had a very special task of not only uh, having artists to think how to present her work in the gallery, but also how to incorporate the sound, because as you know, in most museums, in most galleries, you don't have combination of the two. Thank you, Evelyn, for joining us as well. Thank you so much. It's very nice to be here. Um, my name is Matthew Barton. I am the curator of recorded sound at the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress is just about a mile up that way, uh, but I'm not there most of the time. Uh, most of the time, I'm down in Culpeper, Virginia, which is where the library's uh, audiovisual collections are now stored at a place called the Packard Campus for Audiovisual Conservation. The Packard is David Woodley Packard of the Packard Humanities Institute. It was the major benefactor uh, behind the construction of the whole place. And all of the library's films, videotapes, and recordings, sound recordings, are stored there uh, in pretty much every sound, audio, and visual format that has ever been. Um, you just mentioned uh, collecting 25 recordings a year. I think I guess you were talking about the recorded sound registry, which is a very particular thing where 25 sound recordings uh, are uh, chosen ultimately by the Librarian of Congress, uh, which reflect uh, American history and American culture and technology in, in one way or another, sort of a, uh, a patrimony in recorded sound, and there's a corresponding registry for film, but that is not all that we collect. Um, our recorded sound collection numbers over three million items, and we're adding to that constantly, and the same is true for the um, uh, film and video collections. Um, so, I uh, first got to see this exhibit uh, last week when I was visited and was really taken with it, especially after seeing an uh, uh, exhibition that's at MoMA right now of uh, various artists working with uh, sound and visuals. Um, this is, it's very nice to be in, in one which is, you know, just dedicated, uh, the work of a single artist. I'm going to call it an installation. I don't know if Jenny Jones would appreciate that, but it just strikes me that you've got so many things happening with sound and vision in there at once that it's, it's warranted. So, um, I don't want to keep you from, uh, going in there. I would just say, uh, go in, enjoy, give it some time. These uh, musical selections that you hear um, are 
uh, spaced out by um, moments of silence, which are as much a part of the work as the music itself. Um, it's, uh, it was really nice to come back here and, and spend a few minutes uh, in it just now, and you know, recalling that many of the um, musical artists who were cited by Jenny Jones uh, themselves had a very visual dimension to their presentation and to their performance. I was you know, struck that Rasan Roland Kirk's name is in here. And I never was fortunate enough to hear him uh, play. He died while I was in high school. Uh, but you know, reading about him and talking to people who saw him play, um, it was really striking, you know, that as fine as the recordings are, you know, in performance, it was something entirely different. I was told about one performance where he came out wearing a kind of a long rain slicker, and um, when he turned around, uh, painted or stenciled on the back of the slicker was a giant boot print, like he'd been kicked out of somewhere by some giant. And, you know, it was at once a humorous and but also very trenchant comment on his position as an artist. And, you know, I'm always, I, I always find it very uh, uh, moving to reflect on that, but also, you know, you've got to love uh, someone like Roland Kirk, who was blind, uh, who nevertheless gives the audience a sight gag. So uh, with that, uh, please go in and enjoy, and I'll be waiting for you down the hall. All right, so here we are back in the learner room, and Matthew will continue with his uh, presentation. Okay. Well, let's just see if we can, what the best way to... I mean, I've, I've only got some, you know, a small screen to work with here. Mainly I'm going to be playing you some, some sounds. Um, but uh, I thought I'd give you a few images. This first slide has no sound attached to it, but these are images. This gentleman uh, here is named uh, Tony Schwartz. And uh, he uh, lived in New York, died in 2008, and spent his life uh, recording people and sounds and things all over New York. One of his favorite things to do was record his conversations with New York cab drivers. That's a, an album, actually, that he released uh, just of those conversations, the best of them. Uh, here he is showing some of his recording methods down here. And um, the, the reason I brought recordings by Tony Schwartz is that when I was here last week uh, and walking around uh, Jenny Jones's uh, room there and listening to the sounds of my own footsteps. It made me think of a Schwartz recording that I'll play for you in a few minutes, but I, uh, Schwartz was very interested in this whole idea of music and sound in a particular place and how a place affected sound and affected how a, uh, a musician, mm -hmm, how a musician would approach what they were doing. So the first recording I'll play you is of this gentleman here. I don't know how well you can see him. He was, yes, Moondog. Uh, his real name was Lewis Harden. He uh, styled himself as Moondog. Um, he was uh, blinded as a teenager. He was already uh, musical and studied composition. And he developed a whole um, a persona that was very much um, you know, based on his own philosophy and inquiry into things like the, uh, the old European sagas and, and such. And um, in the 50s and 60s, he was well known around New York. He uh, played in the streets um, and also 
Uh, so there he is on the street. He made his own instruments. These are some of them there. Uh, Schwartz, being someone who spent a lot of time going around the streets of New York, got to know Moondog quite well and um, uh, recorded him. Uh, and uh, he, one night, Schwartz was on the uh, roof of his building in the West 50s and was listening to the foghorns sound and other ambient noises and thought, I want to record Moondog up here. So uh, he found a Moondog, a kind of a regular beat, and uh, Schwartz brought him up there. And uh, so here is a recording of this gentleman, Moondog, uh, recorded about 1952, uh, far on the west side of uh, New York. to my surprise, but also the delight that uh, this gentleman, uh, Jean Tingli or Tinguali, Schwartz pronounces it as Tinguali, I don't know if that's the proper pronunciation of his name, um, is going to be included in an exhibit uh, here next month. Uh, Schwartz had a regular program on New York radio called Sounds of New York, and it could be almost anything uh, that he recorded. And in this case, he was at the Museum of Modern Art in 1960 when uh, Tinguali uh, presented his famous homage to New York, which was a self-destructing sculpture. And, uh, you know, this, this audio coverage of it is really, you know, quite a good homage to the homage to New York because more than any other uh, account that we have, of the, the sculpture's brief life, it emphasizes the, how this thing sounded. And it wasn't just the sound of something breaking down and falling apart. You know, there were piano strings and uh, who knows what else in there. Uh, Tinguali obviously, you know, wanted to get some very uh, distinct sounds out of this creation. So this is, um, we're gonna play the entire program. It's only about five minutes. Good morning. With the opening of a new art gallery in New York, this week, it made me think of an art experience we had in this city exactly four years ago on March 18th in the backyard or garden of the Museum of Modern Art, Jean Tinguali uh, created a sculpture that was uh, made to have its lifetime in the course of uh, a few hours. And this sculpture lived and destroyed itself 
on March 18, 1960, in the backyard of the Museum of Modern Art. And here, today, I'd like to play a sound story which we might call Homage to, Homage to New York. And here goes. listening to the actual sounds of a piece of sculpture called Homage to New York. It came to life by design on March 18, 1960, in the garden of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and there, on the same date, it died, also by design. Meet the artist. Jean Tinguali. Uh, I live in Paris. I'm born in Switzerland. And what is he trying to express through his sculpture? Uh, je m'exprime suffisamment. Non, je ne suis pas interprète historien d'art. Je n'ai pas me justifier. He says he refuses to justify himself. He's not an art historian. He doesn't have to. He's just expressing himself. Tinguali's sculpture is a machine some 23 feet long and 27 feet wide, made up of bicycle wheels, metal drums, an ancient piano, a bathtub, a weather balloon, and glass bottles. Fifteen motors give the sculpture its power, first to come to life and then to destroy itself. While it lives, the sculpture breeds a pattern of sound. To the sculptor, it is more than sound. exhibitions of the modern museum has an answer. Yes, I would call it a piece of art, uh, a piece of art. I would call it a, a moving sculpture. Uh, the wheels will turn and uh, much as a mobile by Alexander Calder, I would certainly call it a, a piece of sculpture and very definitely a work of art. I think it's part of a trend which goes back to the Dada movement of about 1916 when it uh, began in New York and in Zurich and I think it's part of a trend which has been going on for a long time and which may continue, we never know what happens next. Uh, we are showing it because we think it's tremendously exciting to watch. Now, after 30 minutes of life, the mechanism of self-destruction begins. Key parts set themselves on fire. A watchful fireman adds the unplanned for sound of a fire extinguisher. And now, with a final sputter, the sculpture dies, to the applause of hundreds of onlookers.
and in its death, it achieves fulfillment for the sculptor. Oh, it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. It's uh, very complex and uh, it's, a, it's a walk that has many, many uh, capacity. The souvenir hunters go to work and the artist provides his autograph. Merci. Some onlookers express a more thoughtful point of view. I thought it was one of the most exciting things I've seen in the art season in New York. Why? Uh, well, it was something new and visually it was marvelous, very exciting. I felt like being in the 20s again and experiments like this started. It's very amusing and very nice. Very amusing, very nice. Epitaph for a sculpture that was created to die. Well, there it is, a sound memory of a piece of sculpture. See you soon. Uh, I have one more thing. Um, I won't play the entire, this is Jimmy Jeffrey, um, a great uh, jazz saxophonist and clarinetist. I won't play this whole piece, but this is what I was talking about when um, I said that let's hear my own footsteps echo in the room down the hall uh, made me think of this. Uh, Schwartz and Jeffrey and uh, Schwartz's uh, girlfriend at the time uh, walked around New York looking for interesting places to record. The idea was that uh, much like Moondog, Jeffrey was going to uh, play, you know, with the available sounds. And however, unlike uh, Moondog, who, you know, just played with what was going on anyway, um, they, uh, they settled on this one uh, lobby, which had a very nice resonance and, and reverberation to it. And, um, uh, Jeffrey's friend uh, walked back and forth, creating a uh, sound with her heels on the floor, echoing, and Jeffrey worked with that as his accompaniment. So I'll play you a bit of that. The first situation we went into was a huge midtown office building lobby. And here, a friend of Jimmy's that was with us started walking around the lobby. I signaled to her to continue doing this, and I started recording, and then Jimmy started playing.
And here is Jimmy. So, I, yeah, I can, I'd love to, you know, I can answer questions about these recordings. I'd also love to hear what you thought of uh, Jenny Jones's work down the hall. So, um, anyone? I don't know. Um, it was certainly photographed. Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't know if there's, you know, I know I've never seen any documentary footage of it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, you know, to do it justice, you'd have to shoot from multiple angles, too. So, yeah, that would be a heck of a film. <laughs> but I, I don't know if, if, it was, uh, if it was documented, you know, so... Yeah. So there are definitely photos of, of it in, in the MoMA archives, and I think you can find it on the MoMA website. Like, I see that everything digitized now. But mm -hmm. maybe there are photographs of it, but I haven't let you. I mean, I don't know if Matthew speaks up. He was just talking about Yeah, I think it does. You know, that it, it, you've got, first of all, it's a, it's a good space acoustically. Um, and that's you know quite important and quite fortuitous. Uh, you, you have two monitors in there, two pairs, uh, rather two monitor pairs, um, essentially big and small. The um, if you enter on the right, you go past the two smaller monitors, which are you know, mounted you know high up uh, off of the ceiling, and. Um, uh, and you have no monitoring if you go in on the left-hand side, though you can hear the other monitors. So, um, yeah, there's a, uh, there's a spatial aspect to it and a distance aspect to it. When I first saw it last week, um, I went in and um, I, I happened to go in during a silent period. There are these um, moments of silence that last about a minute between the uh, the musical pieces and um, I just sat down uh, there on the um, uh, the bench that's provided and you know was looking at some of the wall pieces uh, when the music started playing again and so uh, you know sitting there for a while there you know I, I found there were very much um, connections you know, not not so much that these uh, pieces were making the sound, but were, um, you know, the uh, uh, the most apparent part of the environment. And um, you know, when things were sounding from different uh, from the different monitor pairs, uh, for me it was a very you know dramatic effect. You know, the, these were. Uh, the, the music that she assembled, these, you know, mashups, that's an unfortunate term to use for these things, which are very delicate constructions. Um, but y y for me, they were like voices, even though there are no, there's no, there are no words, there's no singing. But, you know, I, I felt like I was hearing voices from, uh, from different places. And uh, the, the musical passages are not long, you know, just as you're as I was starting to absorb them, um, you know, they would, would fade away. And you're left there in silence for a minute or so. Um, and then the next one happens. So you know, for me, it was kind of a cumulative effect over time. Um, and connections were not always, uh, were not apparent uh, always, but it was, uh, they very, for me, they very much worked together, you know, that I'd, I, 
you know, when I think of them now, when I think of the music, you know, I see the pieces that are on the wall or on, on the floor. You know, I think of the whole installation. It's memorable for me in that way, in its, in its totality. Does that help you? Okay, good, thank you. No, no, I, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it would be interesting. I don't know how, can, can you speak to the, the, the timing, how that's assembled in there, the, the sequence of the music and silence? Yeah. Well, last week I saw people going in with earbuds and I just <laughs> wanted to say something, but, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I found that perhaps this is because they are made up of uh, different, you know, bits of music from here and there. I, I found that when I stayed in there long enough to hear them repeat, it didn't seem they didn't seem like it didn't seem repetitive because I was I I for some reason I I would focus on a different instrument or a different aspect of what was playing. Yeah, so I found it very rich in that way. Anyone else? Okay. Thank you.